Welcome to episode 248 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and Alma Katsu is joining me on the podcast to talk about Red London, her eighth novel, ninth if you count her graphic novel, The Spy Collector, not to mention a passel of short stories and anthologies. Red London is second in the series featuring CIA agent Lindsay Duncan. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Alma. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm thrilled. You have a considerable backlist, uh, but your earlier novels are what I sort of call historical horror, especially The Hunger, which was uh, Stephen King-esque in its scariness. You are a former CIA intelligence officer. You've also worked in the same capacity at other federal agencies and at RAND as an analyst in technology policy. Red London and its predecessor are your first spy novels. So let me ask you, as you as you became a novelist, was the idea of writing a series of spy thrillers too much of a busman's holiday? (laughs) Well, you know, um, early on, it's not something that I thought I would do, but early on it had been raised to me. And so then I tried writing some and I found out it was harder than I thought. And also a a little bit of a bossman's holiday. You know, it was like, I have to think about the same things at night. So I really didn't think about it until I retired. And then at that point, um, I had written five, four or five books, I think. And my editor at Putnam asked me one day, she said, I know you've always wanted to write a spy novel. Do you want to give it a shot? And, you know, you know what a gift that is, because most writers are certainly capable of writing in more than one genre. But it's really hard to market books in more than by an author in more than one genre. And um, for the publishing house to be willing to take a risk on that really meant a lot. So. Um, and there were things I wanted to do with the spy novel that I wasn't seeing um, in pop culture. How and that is how women are represented, you know. So um, that was really the driving force behind the series, and it's been a privilege to have the opportunity to to you know really address these things that interest me. Well, by the way, today is International Women's Day, so happy International Women's Day. Uh, one out of 365. I guess we should be happy with that. <laughs> and we're going to we're going to touch on that because that's something I actually uh, actually uh, we're going to touch on women in the intelligence world. But also you bring up something very interesting vis-a-vis publishing, and that is um, being typecast uh, in a genre. And you're you're absolutely right. I think that uh, so often writers will will say, but what I really want to do is X. And publishers and agents will say, yes, but what you're really known for is Y. And that is, I think, a conundrum because writing is writing.
Sure. It's, it is, uh, you know, a lot of writers, I think, have more than one genre in them. But, um, you know, that's the thing. It's a business. And um, it's low-hanging fruit, right, to go after. You've already made a name for yourself. It's easier to continue to try to sell books in that direction. I know that sounds terrible, but you know this. The reality is that it's really hard to sell a book, right? You're competing for the public's attention on so many fronts. You know, it's your business, it's my business. So we remember all these things, but most people, you know, aren't following me religiously. They don't know how, when my book's coming out or, you know, that I published an, a book last year or something. And I, it really, I, I came to realize it was not realistic for me to expect that someone who likes horror, let's say, is also going to like spy novels or vice versa. So I, I will admit marketing has been really, really tough. Just to give one tiny example, you know, I've gone into bookstores and I've found Red Widow, which is the first in the spy series, shelved on horror next to my other books. And I understand why they do that. They like to keep authors' books all together because if someone's looking for one of your books, maybe they'll pick up the other one. But for someone who didn't know, they might be really confused if they picked up Red Widow because it is obviously not a horror novel. So, you know, it's it's been tougher than I thought it would be to kind of get around that problem. So let's get to Red London. Uh, it finds mildly disgraced CIA agent Lindsay Duncan on assignment in London. And her brief from the CIA is to suss out a potential Russian defector, but she's loaned out to England's MI6 to investigate a Russian oligarch who lives on London's so-called Billionaire's Row, which is a very nice street overlooking Hampstead Heath in the north of London. The oligarch is married to an English woman from an aristocratic but not wealthy family. And this oligarch may have run afoul of Moscow, which is something that can be extraordinarily harmful to your health. So Lindsay's asked to befriend, to befriend Emily Rottenberg, knee Hughes, to see if she'll flip on her husband. I found this a fascinating way into this sort of Russian issue in London. So I'm going to ask right. you what you, where, wh how that happened, where it came from. Well, this might sound a little crazy, but actually... It goes all the way back to 1994. I was an analyst then. And in 1994 is when the UK created this class of visa that would allow foreigners to stay in the country if they invested about a million pounds in the British economy. The UK was in a terrible recession and they'd actually been in another terrible recession a few years before that. So their economy was in really bad shape and they had to figure out a way to bring in new money. At the same time, the Soviet Union was falling apart. And this is what I was watching is, uh, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen to this country. It very well could have fallen into chaos. But the class of men who would later become the oligarchs were the guys who were seizing um, state properties, state companies, state businesses, and privatizing them. They weren't doing that. I mean, they were stealing, basically, a lot of them. Um you know, the origins were very murky. Plus the Kremlin had, I mean, not the Kremlin, I'm sorry, KGB had seen the writing on the wall 
they saw that everything was going to change and they started funneling money to some of these guys. And that's why there's this close bond between the oligarchs and the state, particularly, you know, Putin and um, the Internal Security Service. So back then I was fascinated. What was going to happen to England when they were welcoming all this dirty money? At what point would it implode? Well, you know, it kept growing over 20 years. and But finally, it got to the point where England knew they had to do something about it. It started in 2018 with the Sergei Skirpal poisoning, where the uh, Russians were so bold as to poison this um, double agent uh, who was an asset for, for the UK, you know, on their own soil in a pretty capricious way, right? They could have poisoned a lot of Britons. And then all the way up to the invasion last year where the UK really said, okay, enough is enough. You know, we really got to do something. They levied all those sanctions, which was a bit of, su of a surprise because um, Russian investment in the UK is incredibly high. And um, those guys, they're hurt, you know, it's hurting their own economy by sanctioning those guys. So, um, yeah, it just really was uh, fortuitous in a way, because the book was finished before the invasion of Ukraine. And so I didn't know it was going to quite go, you know, the way it did. Well, hold that thought, because I do have a question about how you had to pivot with right. the novel. And you mentioned it in your acknowledgments, so it's not a spoiler. I think the idea of entering the story through the wives of oligarchs is both unique and brilliant. And to your point about refocusing the uh, a spy novel through the distaff side, shall we say. Mm -hmm. So right before I read, I started writing these questions, I read the New York Times article on Dasha Zukova who was married to Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, who is so well known, most people know who he is. And even though she's divorced from him, sort of her admission into the higher echelons of polite society is sort of a delicate dance between deep pockets and virtue signaling, You know, her, meaning her money is very desirable and her Russianness not so much. So yeah. that made me think about some of the Russian oligarchs' wives that you wrote about in your book, who were friends of uh, Mikhail Rotenberg's wife, Emily, and how they have to negotiate their world. So since it's International Women's Day, and these are international women, can you talk a little bit about what kind of position these women find themselves in? Well, I, I will admit part of it is um, what I imagine their life must be like. A lot of the research I did on the oligarchs came from a couple books that looked at, you know, how these people became oligarchs. And, you know, they talk a little bit about the families. They talk about sort of then the character that a lot of the oligarchs take on. That is, they try to hide the fact that they actually came from money or that their family was embedded in the state um you know, in um, government, let's say, before the Soviet Union fell. They want people to think that they're just these self-made men, that they were exceptional. And that's why they've been able to amass the ridiculous amount of riches that they have. So if you think of men like that, you think of what kind of woman is likely to be married to them. What does that woman value? You know, what is she trying to attain at all costs? 
I have to admit, I kind of went into Emily that way, thinking, well, what kind of British woman would marry someone who is clearly, you know, has blood on his hands and, you know, has probably done a lot of really horrendous, horrible things. And I, you know, sort of pictured her as a gold digger. It wasn't until I started really writing and rewriting and coming to understand her that I saw that she wasn't exactly what she appeared to be, you know, that there was more, more to the story. And I mean, that's the part that I found interesting. The other thing that sort of informed the oligarchs' wives is just understanding the Russian culture. It's very chauvinistic, very, you know, male-oriented. All of the value is placed on males. Um, and so I wanted that reflected, too, in the story as well. That this is a society where the women are almost invisible, and they're, you know, competing for their husband's attention. Maybe not, really. They know they're having affairs. They're, you're always seeing pictures of them, right, with starlets and models, and, you know, all these salacious stories come out in the news. And as a woman, you pictures who's in that position and, and what they're likely feeling and, and likely going through. Um, that, that's a good segue to, you know, one of the things that struck me about this novel was that women are in business or in intelligence or in the CIA or MI6 are always being held to a higher standard or in other words, they're undervalued. Um, and Lindsay has an affair with her MI6 counterpart in Beirut, a man that she runs into in London on this on this particular uh, job. And he, when the affair is, is revealed, he cruises through, even though he's married. So it's actually adultery on his part. And Lindsay is almost fired. So, which is, goes back to the mildly disgraced description from earlier. So I've talked to a number of former CIA turned novelists in, in this podcast. And the consensus seems to be that the CIA is no different from the rest of the world. Uh, women, uh, even at the top of the game, sort of get short shrift. And yet for a number of reasons, they're probably better at the job, especially as field agents, as men. So I want to let's talk about Lindsay a little bit and talk about that aspect of your book. Sure. I'm first of all, I have to say I'm gratified to hear that they agree with me. <laughs> and in that respect, CIA isn't very different from the rest of the world. I mean, since Red Widow co has come out, I've talked to a lot of people in different industries, talked to a lot of Hollywood people. There seems to be a lot more of a correlation <laughs> between Hollywood people and clandestine service uh, than than I would have thought. But um, yeah, that's just sort of an unfortunate truth um, in many fields, right? In, in, in addition to intelligence, where women's work just isn't valued in the same way. I mean, I could go on and on and on. By the time I left, I retired from government, I was in a fairly senior position, management position. I had been on many, many, many promotion boards over the years um, because I was a woman and at a certain grade, you're just a rarity. And so you get called on all the time. And the things I heard just, you know, just flabbergast me. When a woman does something, it's expected. If a man does the same thing, it's extraordinary, right? And he has to be rewarded. Where the woman is told, you have to wait your turn. It, it's just not your time yet. You have to wait. And I would see that over and over again, said more to the women than to the men. 
But the other thing, and this came up when I was doing interviews for Red Widow, I said, you know, the funny thing is, is I've had almost every senior man that I ended up knowing, like as a friend at CIA, at some point <laughs> would reveal to me something they did that was against the rules. They had broken the rules. And it wasn't for national security reasons, right? It was always ego. They just wanted to. And they were pretty confident they could get away with it, that even if someone found out, they wouldn't be held accountable for it. I don't know any women <laughs> who have done anything like that because they know they probably will be held accountable, that it'll it'll go against them. And this whole having an affair either you know with a target or with uh, someone from a foreign intelligence service, that absolutely does happen. And I can't say it's always black and white. Because the answer to anything in the intelligence business is it depends. So if you have an affair with a foreign intelligence officer, will you be fired? It depends. Could it be useful for, for the agency? Could maybe you try to flip that person or get information from them? So they're not, it's not a black and white thing, right? But the chances are that if someone just has it out for you, that they may go ahead and make it work against you rather than for you. So in Red London, uh, the action and, and, you know, a lot of the action is cerebral, centers around actually three women. Lindsay Duncan, who's charged with ingratiating herself with Emily, and an independent uh, uh, security woman who has also been charged to do the same thing. And they are now both in Emily's um sphere and i thought that introduced uh a marvelous juxtaposition of the cia which lindsay describes as having to abide by certain rules international rules their own rules and the private sector which is growing exponentially and attracting many many people that have been involuntarily um severed from their previous intelligence worlds. So can you talk a little bit about how, first of all, why you did that, why you uh, added um, this other character whose name is absolutely escaping me. Um, Danny Childs. Okay. Danny Childs. And, and what the sort of the purpose was of her introduction into the story. She's really pretty marvelous, by the way. Oh, thank you. There's some parts of her, like her early, when she talks about things she experienced at CIA, I drew from exactly from my own career when I was a young analyst. Um, I put it in there because uh, we are experiencing this rise in this new phenomenon called private intelligence. Now I'll preface all this by saying for the last 10 years, I've been a futurist for the IC, I still do it as a consultant. And so I'm always looking at trends, finding new trends, although they're usually technology-based. But this one I stumbled upon because it started right when I retired. And so when I was talking to companies, I was noticing that they were more interested in getting intelligence people than they had been in the past. In particular, I, I won't say what it was, but I deal with this one particular sector in technology. And they used to hold this out at arm's length. They did not want the intelligence community knowing more about their business than they wanted. 
And now suddenly they were starting to hire intelligence people away from their jobs. Because we live in an age of incredible disinformation, right? There's a lot of sleight of hands going on out there where a, a company may be telling you one story, but what they're really doing is a lot more complex and probably a little more gray than the black and white there. And they're finding that intelligence people are really good at helping do that kind of stuff. Why this is a problem is because when you work for the government in this capacity, you are operating under certain authorities and mandates that if you do it when you're a private citizen, it's illegal. <laughs> and the problem is we were seeing these cases where um, the ex-government people were acting like they were still government people and it's illegal. What makes this really interesting is the people who are doing the hiring are very wealthy individuals who just want to spook on their payroll, you know, their fixer, um, companies, some companies, and um, foreign governments. So, and there have been cases in the news. If you go back and look, I'll give you one. It's called Project Raven. It was a case where some um, NSA linguists were hired away by a front company. They thought it was a legitimate business, but it was a front company who was hiring them for the UAE. And the, um, the government wanted them to recreate a program that they had worked on in NSA. So basically taking all of the proprietary secrets of how you set up this incredibly difficult technical program and just jumping over all the work and hiring these people. And they actually kind of kidnapped them. They wouldn't let them, once the NSA people figured out what was going on, they wanted to leave and they prevented them from leaving the country. And it was a big mess. But but that happens more often than you might think. And it, it's important. I mean, CIA figured this out and the intelligence community has changed some of the regulations now. So you can no longer quit a government position and immediately go work for a foreign government, for instance. But um, yeah, I, it was just a really interesting phenomenon to me, and I thought it was worth making it more public. There's always been business intelligence, which are almost like private detectives and research cells, right? Mm -hmm. And they there is a code of ethics they're supposed to abide by, and most of them do, but it's very different than what we're talking about, which is more like active intelligence work. But what they've what they've caught some of the ex spy folks doing is uh, sometimes a, a bit more serious than that. But, you know, it, it's just crazy. Anyway, I'll stop. <laughs> I, think, I think we can safely say we can stipulate that the world is crazy. Yeah, the world is crazy. And that reading your books is a sliver of sanity. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so another thing that Red London does um, you know, I guess I think before I ask you this question, we should talk a little bit about Anna's motivation, um, excuse me, Emily's motivation and what Lindsay's trying to do. Basically, Lindsay has been sent in uh, her husband, Mikhail, uh, Emily's husband, Mikhail, may have his life in danger from the Kremlin. And what they're going to do is try to get Emily to flip on her husband. And what this made me think of was not just your books, but 
espionage fiction in general, how transactional the intelligence world is. And it, how, is. it all comes down to how much intel can be obtained for the lowest price. Will Emily flip on her husband? Will what she has to offer be enough to offer her relocation, new identities, and you know, which don't come cheap, all of the backstopping. That stuff's expensive. So, you know, that, once again, she's undervalued. <laughs> and I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you about, because that, that is basically the premise of the story. I mean, that's not a spoiler, because you, you pretty much get to that in the second chapter. But right, right, right away. Yes, Emily is a very interesting character. And and please forgive me if I said this already, but I've been doing these interviews all day, so I'm starting to forget when I've mentioned something. Um, the book was deliberately written to be like two books. Part of it is like domestic suspense. And that's Emily's story, where she's talking about her marriage and what it's like to be married to an oligarch and what her life is like. And has she made a terrible mistake? And how do I get out of it? And then the other half is the spy novel. And it was done deliberately because I do feel like more women would, would probably like the spy genre if they tried it, but it's very male dominated. So I have this, this domestic uh, suspense component. It, it's interesting you brought up the transactional nature of intelligence work, because it absolutely is. But that's not the story that we like to tell or then of course, you know, what Hollywood ends up portraying it. It's more about, you know, heroics and sacrifice and all that kind of Honor. stuff. Right. They would lead you to believe that if you give up this secret, you know, to save this other country, that the other country is going to take care of you for the rest of your life. No, it's mostly about, you know, they'll pay you as long as you're giving them good information on what they need to know. And when you stop or you have no more information or they find out you've been lying, you know, they're going to cut you loose. It's it's like a job. And probably some of the most successful spies are the ones who understand that transactional uh, nature of it. But um, yeah, Emily's and so Emily's kind of in that bind. She's in a very emotional situation. And when you're in a situation like that, you want to be saved. You want somebody who's going to protect you and take care of you. But it's really more, in truth, it's more transactional than that. So yeah, that that's an interesting point that you bring up, you know, that sort of clash of feeling versus reality. Well, you have a nice dose of reality in there. <laughs> I, I've talked to other writers about this sub subject and you touched on it. Uh, Writing a novel is is a long lead endeavor. Writing any book is a long lead endeavor. You know, it's anywhere from a few months to a few years to write the book. And that's before you turn it in, uh, usually first to your agent, then to the publisher. And and as I mentioned, you touched on this in, in your acknowledgement. And you mentioned that you essentially had completed Red London uh, before geopolitical events uh, interfered. Uh, and Russia invaded Ukraine. So can you talk about that pivot, what that did to you, what that did to your process, and ultimately what it did to the novel? Well, that the invasion was a big surprise to all of us, right? I mean, it really did kind of come out of nowhere. Um, I had turned the novel in, and when my editor read it, she said, 
you know, that some of this stuff just isn't going to work because now it feels old. You've, you're going to have to update it. I should say every novelist, every spy novelist I knew, we everyone was working on a Russia book. And of course, Russia, you, you had to be looking at Putin's ambitions. So we were all caught out. Everyone was like, what am I going to do now? It was so funny. So I started rewriting it, trying to sort of project a little bit ahead what this means, right? They're doing this. This means that Finland's going to feel threatened or Sweden is going to feel threatened. You know, we're trying to make all these projections. And then the next day it would be in the newspaper, you know, and it's like, ah, I got to start all over again. So I did this a couple times and then I thought, this is crazy. I have to get out in front of it or we'll be rewriting right up until it goes to print and then it'll be old, right? So I said, what's the one thing that everybody wants to see? They want Putin to go away, <laughs> right? People would be so happy if they read that in a book. But then what happens if, you know, the cure is worse than the disease? If the man who replaces him is even worse and is more devious and more ruthless, then what? And so that's what I set to bring about in the book, which I think is really ex what has excited a lot of people. Because on one hand, yes, I'm giving them what they want. Putin goes away. But then you get this really delicious conundrum. Um, and, and yeah, once that once I figured that part out, then the rest of it was just re, you know a little bit of rewriting and pulling threads through the story. The classic, be careful what you ask for. Yes. It was so much fun. And I can't wait to develop this guy, Victor Kasijan, who's the um, the new Russian president. I have two more questions. Uh, retired intelligence officers often become novelists. And I think I've spoken to at least a dozen of them in the wow. doing this. Um, <laughs> and I have a theory. I have a theory that much of intelligence work, both in the field and in analysis, is storytelling, not making things up, but storytelling. It's presenting a scenario in, in the best, most convincing way possible, either to a potential target or when you're trying to convince um, government officials of a particular scenario. You've got to use words. You've got to use descriptive ways of expressing what could happen and they and it's a story um lawyers do the same thing it's not lying it's just telling a story i've written nonfiction. it has to be told in a way that's going to engage the listener or the reader so i'm asking you as a former uh intelligence official uh, am i am i delusional or is this a valid point you know, it's very interesting. Um, it is a valid point. It applies, I think, more to the clandestine service side because, you know, as a writer, as a novelist, my art is manipulation. I am figuring out what I want the reader to know, when I want them to know it, and controlling how that information is. It comes to the, the reader. And in clandestine service, it's kind of the same, right? You're trying to convince an asset to do something that you want them to do, which is probably not in their best interest to do, right? If they stop and think about it. And so you've got to figure out a way to get them to do that. How are you going to present your case 
so that they do what you want them to do. It's a lot more like that. It's manipulation. Maybe you're going to hide back some information or you're going to have them look at this hand while this hand is, you know, doing. It's like being a magician, actually. Um, in analysis, it's a little different because we're trained to um, approach very complex subjects in a certain way so that we can break them down quickly and make them readily understandable and get rid of all the chafe. So there's less of that manipulation and, and deflection. In a briefing, there might be a little bit more, but in written products, they are very standardized. The reason I say this is interesting was a few years ago, I'm sure you're aware of this, right? There's been this whole rise of storytelling, storytelling in business, storytelling in your shareholders report, storytelling in commercials. I'll never forget how this was sort of hammered home to me. I was driving and this radio commercial came on where this this guy is talking about his graduate the day he graduated from college and how happy he was and you know just really investing you in his personal growth story and he talks about walking across the stage and he looked over and he saw his mother smile and her smile was so dazzling it was a commercial for a dentist a dentist right they teach you now how to write those kinds of stories to really engage the listener or the reader and pull those heartstrings. And I went back, I was still a consultant for the government. And I said, you know, maybe you need to start teaching some of these storytelling skills to our people so they understand better when they're briefing a policymaker or when they're doing stuff. It may not make it to the written report, but we have to tell our stories better so that our customers understand our point of view. And a lot of people agreed with me, but it's, it didn't quite fly because they are still very gun shy about coupling story to intelligence. It, people just make this assumption that we're talking about lying, right? That they're making up a story as opposed to really knowing something. So I, I think you've, you're very insightful. <laughs> And there's, yeah, probably a need for a little more storytelling um, capability in the intelligence community. My last question is, since I, I read Red London and I'm now in the middle of reading Red Widow, which I know is a little bit convoluted, but there you go. I have a feeling we're going to see Lindsay Duncan again. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what's next now that you're embarked on a series as opposed to standalones, uh, if you're still uh, telling Lindsay's story, because it's not, it's fiction and you can tell her story. Yeah, I'm hoping there's going to be more stories. I guess only time will tell. It's interesting, you know, I wrote the first book and it definitely leads in a certain direction. Things are happening and you kind of want to know what's going to happen next. And I assumed I would have been writing the second book would be the continuation of the first. But the publisher was interested in something that was maybe a little different and, and more of a standalone. And people do that in their series. They write books that, you know, um, don't necessarily pick up all the threads. And I'm glad they wanted that because I really like Red London. And now I can see the possibility of other things happening besides, um, you know, the, the train that we got on in Red Widow. But hopefully the third book will pick that up because Red London kind of ends with a cliffhanger that points back to the other main character of Red Widow, which is Teresa Warner, the Red Widow, 
who is a CIA officer who was married to an uh, agent who was killed in an operation in Moscow. She finds out that CIA betrayed her in a terrible way and she seeks to get her revenge. And all that gets squared away at the end of Red Widow, but then we find out that it's maybe not as squared away as we thought it was. <laughs> so I do want to write that, but um, Red London really opened my eyes. So like, I want Danny Childs to come back. I want people to see, because right now the allure of private intelligence is, is really making people leave the intelligence business. There's money, there's freedom. Um, I think, so I think there's uh, more stories to be told there. Well, my fingers are crossed because I'm completely on team Lindsay <laughs> and want to see more. Uh, and I'm also hoping I will get the opportunity to talk to you again about her. That would be great. That would be great. So I wanted to thank you very, very much for your time, Alma, and wish you tremendous success with this book. And, and uh, hopefully we get to talk in the next 18 months, year to 18 months. I would love that. Thank you so much. This has really been a lot of fun. You asked great questions. Thanks.